All right, we'll get started here. So um, if you grabbed your notes back there for six books of the Minor Prophets tonight, I filled in the blanks for you. Uh, because we're going to cover so much, I, I think you'll get more out of tonight if you open up your Bible and follow along. Um, and so there, there is one typo, though, if I remember to show you uh, to fix a reference here. But we're going to look at six more of the Minor Prophets. And so last week, Jason covered um, five of them. And he did that in, in really good time. Um, but he talked about some of the minor prophets that are better known. Not minor meaning that they're uh, not important, but just they're shorter books and they're typically lesser known. But he talked about the ones that are better known, being Hosea, the prophet that married a prostitute, and Jonah uh, going to Nineveh and the big fish, and, and Joel, who's quoted in Acts chapter 2. Those are better known. And he covered those uh, in the five that he covered last week. But tonight we're going to get into six books, and the reason why we're covering so many is next week. I don't think any weather is coming, so we should finish on time next week with Malachi. And, and the plan is to really look at the gateway to the New Testament and look at the book of Malachi next week. And so, um, Lord willing, if everything goes according to plan, we'll probably go through every verse of that book uh, next week and just tackle it as one on its own. But tonight we're going to start in Micah, if you want to turn there in a couple minutes, we're going to start there. And um, we're going to look at these six books, and the six that we're looking at tonight, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. These are six books of the Bible that I'd be willing to bet probably very few of us know much about. But you'll recognize as we go through them, several of them do have some prophecies about Christ that around Christmas time you're probably going to recognize. But beyond that, these are six books that tend to be lesser known. Uh, and they are of the 12 minor prophets, the 12 shorter, for the most part, uh, prophetical books that we're going to take a look at. So the first one's going to be Micah, if you open up there. And I'm not going to talk a ton about the timing of the prophets tonight. I may talk a little bit about these, but those handouts that we gave out in the past, and they're still back there, they will help you see kind of the time in which they are ministering more. I'm not going to focus on that tonight as much as I'm going to focus on the message and looking at the text itself. So first of all, Micah, if you open up there, chapter 1 and verse 1. You can tell who he's prophesying to just in how he describes things in this first verse. He says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Meshoreth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now let me ask you, um, the kings of Judah, which kingdom is that? Southern or northern? I heard something. Southern. Okay, so they last longer, right? Jerusalem lasts longer. Which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Why is he talking about Samaria? Does anybody remember what that's the capital of? Any guesses? See, somebody's about to say something. If Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, where is Samaria capital of? Of the northern kingdom, yep. And so um, he is going to be prophesying while both kingdoms exist. So we see that just simply here in how the book starts. Now this book has a theme of justice in it. 
And Micah is clearly here in verse 1 addressing the southern kingdom uh, with the capital being at Jerusalem, the two tribes, which are going to last longer and be more faithful for longer, although they still are going to stray from the Lord. And also Samaria, as we just saw, the capital of the northern ten kingdoms. And he's really going to deal with the issue of justice and asking God to be just. Um, and he's going to teach us that one day prophetically the Lord will come and he is going to judge Israel, uh, both north and south, for their spiritual boredom, for their prostitution. And one day, he's also going to come and restore Israel under the Messiah. So if you flip forward to chapter 4 with me, we're going to uh, spend most of our time tonight in the last book, Zechariah, we're going to look at. We're going to go a little quicker through these other five books. But chapter 4 of Micah, we're going to look at the first seven verses. And we're going to see that, yes, the Lord is going to judge, but also one day he is going to send the Messiah back to Israel. And so as we, I read this, bear in mind that these are the prophecies that the apostles and the Jews at the time of Christ are thinking of when they hear the Messiah has come. They're thinking of these things and they're wondering why that's not coming to pass the first time that Jesus came. Verse uh, 1 through 7, chapter 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his path for out of Zion shall the law go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Just think about that for a minute. You know this is supposed to happen, and you've heard the Messiah has come. Wouldn't you be expecting him to conquer? Because other nations are going to come see you. So these are the prophecies going through their mind when he comes the first time. It goes on to say in verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. So you're going to be exalted to a very important status above other nations again is this prophecy. Notice, though, what it points to in the second part of verse 3. The other nations, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. A time of incredible peace, uh, pointing to the millennial kingdom. Verse 4. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people each walk in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. That's in Jerusalem. He's going to sit on the mount and have his throne there from now on and even forever. And you, O tower, the flock of the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, even the former dominion shall come, and the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So we see a prophecy here very clearly pointing to the Messiah reigning, and they know these prophecies quite well. We're going to get a good taste of that this evening. But they point to the millennial reign of Christ. These have never been fulfilled yet, so we look for them to be fulfilled at his next coming. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, if you flip forward again. Verse 8 of chapter 6 is very well known. It's a good one to memorize, great one to teach kids. 
Uh, it really summarizes what our duty is to other people, how to live. And again, remember the theme of Micah is justice, the justice of the Lord and him reigning and administering justice in the world. And so here's what it tells us our responsibility is in that. Uh, chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And so this is a very famous passage. You'll see it on mugs and all different types of things that talks about our responsibility toward one another. And as believers, that we are called to do justly as as to the ability the Lord provides us to in this world, that we are to, though, love mercy, not just be hyper-justice-oriented uh, like the Pharisees were, but to love mercy as well and to walk humbly with our God. And so we see that very famous passage there. Now, if you flip back to chapter 5 and verse 2, and I'm going to go all the way actually to 2 in the beginning of verse 5, and that's... Uh, the typo in your notes down near the end here of our section on Micah. I didn't put chapter 5 in there. I think that's the only typo I made, but there's a lot of references in here tonight, so hopefully that's the only one. Uh, but chapter 5, starting in verse 2 and going all the way to the beginning of verse 5, verse 2 is one that you're going to recognize around Christmas time. It's a very well-known prophecy of Christ's coming, but then it speaks of his second coming, where he will come as king as well. They're, they're tied together, which is part of the reason why it was so confusing to the Jewish people. Verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, and they shall abide, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. And so many times in prophecy we're going to see tonight, Jesus' first coming and his second coming occur in the same section of verses, and that's why it was uh, very confusing to them when he came on why he didn't just take the throne that first time. It's why the last question that the disciples ask him in the book of Acts, right before he's ready to ascend, is, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They know these prophecies very well, and they're wanting an answer to that. It's at the forefront of their minds. Now, Jesus in Micah, to see how he is pictured in each one of these books tonight, you'll see there in your notes, Jesus is pictured in what we just read in chapter 5 as the ultimate shepherd king. He's the better David. You may remember David was from Bethlehem, and the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And we even see here in this chapter that it speaks of Jesus in verse 4 as standing and feeding his flock. Just as David was a shepherd, Jesus will be the eternal shepherd of his people. And so there is that prophecy of Christ here in this book. Then we come to the little tiny book of Nahum, uh, which is basically an appendix to Jonah. It's like a, a second book of Jonah. Because what it deals with is not really Israel. Nahum is actually a prophecy to Assyria that Nineveh is now going to fall. Uh, probably a couple of centuries have passed 
since Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached to them and they repented. And now a couple centuries later, they've gone back to their horrific cruelty and they're going to experience destruction for their sin. Now, if we look in chapter three and verse one, we get just a taste um, of what this book goes on to describe Nineveh being like. It says, woe to you, bloody city. It is always full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. Now, to help us understand better why Jonah was probably so reluctant a couple centuries before Nahum to go to them was because the, the nation of Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria, were known for ruling through cruelty. They were known in ancient times for taking many people captive, for filleting their victims alive, and other atrocities. They were a very bloody, bloody people that ruled through terror and intimidation. And so it's not making it okay, but it helps us understand a little bit better why Jonah didn't want to go to them. Furthermore, they were the antagonists against Israel at this time, this era of history. So they were killing Israelites this way, most likely. That would further help us understand why Jonah probably did not want to go to them and why the Jewish people are probably kind of happy when Nahum gives this prophecy about their destruction. But it's, it's an important book to help us remember that God cares about the Gentile nations too. He sent one of his prophets to them, and they did respond before, and they repented, but then they turned back, the, the next generations turned back to their wickedness, and they would experience God's judgment because of that. So we learn the principle yet again that even non-Jewish nations the Lord cares about, but every nation, not just Israel, stands accountable before him for the choices they make and the sins they commit. We learned that from this short little book. Uh, so Nineveh is going to be judged here. And I'll show you just a couple of verses in this book. Uh, Nahum chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then we'll jump down to 7 and 8. These verses talk about um, the Lord being the avenger against this bloody nation. It says in verse 2, God is jealous, the Lord avenges, the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the wicked he will not at all acquit. And so we learn here God will exercise vengeance toward those who reject him, toward those who are wicked and are who oppose to him as his enemies. But he will show mercy toward those who turn toward him. And that's consistent with God's character throughout the Bible. Verse 7 and 8 goes on to say, The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. So there very clearly is this being on the right side of the Lord or his wrong side. Let me show you a couple places in the Bible where we see this as well. Uh, Romans chapter 12, first of all. In the New Testament, Paul uses very similar language to what's used in Nahum here to describe the Lord's justice and how we are to treat the subject of vengeance. So Romans chapter 12 First of all, verse 9 kind of opens the section we're going to look at. And it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, but cling to what is good. 
And that's the overall thing that even Nahum is teaching, that the Lord knows his people, and if we cling to him and cling to what is good, he'll protect his own. But those who choose to follow after evil, there is destruction coming. It goes on then to say in verse 17 through 21 here of Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Why do we not have to avenge ourselves? Because of what Scripture is going to go on to say here. But rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And then we have verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we learn the Lord is the one that will avenge his people, and he will take justice against wickedness. But our role is to heap burning coals upon people's heads by doing good to them in the name of Christ in the midst of what they're doing. We see a similar thing said in Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, which tell us, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for in so doing you will hope, uh, heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So we see our responsibility versus God's responsibility here. And what we learn about Jesus in Nahum is that Jesus is judge and Jesus is savior. Those are not two truths in contradiction to one another. Rather, they're both true. It's both and and. The Lord is judge, and he also is savior. Then we come to the little book of Habakkuk, is the next one of the Old Testament prophets. What a name to say. And Habakkuk is essentially going to ask the Lord a couple of questions, and I'll just kind of distill it down to one for our purposes this evening. But Habakkuk is basically going to ask the Lord the question, why are you turning a blind eye to violence, Lord? So we see violence in our world. Have you ever asked that question, Lord, why are you allowing it? Why are you allowing the wicked to not be punished for what they're doing? That's essentially the question that Habakkuk asks here in this short little book. So there's actually a book of the Bible about that question, if you've ever had it. And we learn a truth here in this book that God's timetable and his ways are different than ours. God is going to deal with things, but he teaches Habakkuk through... Um, Several different things, and we'll look first of all at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just to give us a taste of the question that this prophet took to the Lord. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. So he has a burden, he sees what's going on around him, and it's weighing on him. Verse 2 O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. So he's pointing out the violence to the Lord in prayer, and he's wondering, Lord, why aren't you answering my prayers? Have you ever wondered that when you've prayed something, perhaps prayed against something wicked going on, and wondering why God's permitting it? Well, this prophet felt the same way. Verse 3, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. Do you feel like that sometimes is how our nation is? This prophet felt the same way. He goes on to say, For the wicked surround the, just, the, the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. 
And so Habakkuk is taking these questions to the Lord, and he's waiting upon the Lord for an answer, we're going to see, and then the Lord is going to give him an answer. Jump to chapter 2. We'll look at the first four verses there as well. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch and see what he says to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. So he sets himself up to continue watching and to see what God is going to do. He takes that role of a watchman that we have seen other prophets use as well. The idea of one standing there, looking at what's happening and ready to sound the alarm. Verse 2, then the Lord answered me and said, and these are very famous verses, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Recognize that phrase from the New Testament? What Habakkuk is being told essentially here is, I will exercise justice as the Lord, is what the Lord is telling him. But you're called to live by faith, not by sight, by what you're seeing. That's essentially his answer to this question. And um, we, we also learn, I think, an important truth here from how the Lord responds to Habakkuk. Because he gives him a vision, he tells him to write it down, he tells him it will come to pass, but you're not going to see it in your own lifetime. And I put this in your notes, but I think this is a very important point for us to understand. The Lord may choose to use our lives and our ministries for another generation beyond our lifetime. I think we saw that very clearly in Jeremiah, did we not? People did not listen to him. But we look at him today and we continue to read and there's enormously comforting passages there. God had a purpose in his life and his ministry, but it wasn't mostly in his lifetime. And many a Christian missionary, if you read their biographies, and many a Christian author's work has its real effectiveness after the servant already dies. And I don't know exactly why the Lord chooses that. Maybe it's so that that person would not get a big head during their lifetime. I wonder if that may be part of it. Don't really know for certain. But I certainly can say that it is a repeated truth throughout the scriptures and throughout the present day that there are many Christians who labor and labor their whole lifetime. They sow seed, but it's not until later on that the harvest comes. And so there's encouragement in, I think, the message of Habakkuk. He wrestles with these questions, like I think we do at different times in our nations as believers, whether that's America or whether we live in another nation. We wrestle with these questions before the Lord, but the Lord still calls us to serve Him and to continue to follow Him. And the vision and the truth may yet be for an appointed time. There's also some powerful, comforting phrases in chapter 3, if you turn to chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 an encouraging part of his prayer. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shignoeth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk is getting the answer. Write this vision down. It's for a time beyond you. And yet he's saying, Lord, even if people are going to reject me in your wrath, in your judgment in my day, still remember mercy for your people. That's what he's praying. A very comforting prayer. He's basing that on the character of God, that our God is merciful and long-suffering. And so we see him ask for that, even in the midst of what he's enduring. And then the very end of the book, verses 18 and 19, 
are some very famous words. Yet again, an entire book has actually been written uh, called Hind's Feet in High Places. It's an allegory, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that. And verse 18 and 19 tell us this. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. So notice the conclusion of the book is Habakkuk rejoicing in who his God is, not in the circumstances he finds himself in. Very powerful lesson there. It goes on to say in verse 19, The Lord God is my strength. So he's drawing his strength from who the Lord is, not from the circumstances surrounding him. Again, a powerful lesson. And then it says these famous words, He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high heels. And then it goes on to say to the chief musician with stringed instruments. So apparently this was a psalm, something they would actually sing, uh, what this prophet said, which is kind of an interesting way to, to think of these words as well. But when it talks about how the Lord will make our feet like deer's feet, it's talking about being given that, that cloven hoof that can scale the rocky mountain. Um, something that you'll see like mountain goats can do. And so in other words, the Lord can work through us even in the midst of challenging times to prepare our feet to climb the mountain with him, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So that essentially is Habakkuk. And Jesus in Habakkuk is pictured as Jesus bringing God's vengeance one day. And I'll show you a couple of verses that point to that prophetically. Uh, chapter 2 verses, or pardon me, chapter 3, first of all, verses 12 through 13. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled nations in your anger. Again, prophetically seeming to point to that day when Jesus returns in power and glory. Verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people and the salvation of your anointed. There's Jesus. You struck the head of the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to the neck. Selah. That word Selah means to pause and think about this, that the Lord is coming back. Jesus is coming back to trample nations in judgment. That's near the end of Revelation. And we know that he will come back as judge one day. We also see in chapter 2 and verse 20 that in light of these truths of who our Lord is, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Can you imagine that day when Jesus returns and he walks into the temple? No longer is there the holy of holies when they rebuild it. He walks into the temple. He's there and all of the earth keeps silence before him because he's holy and he is reigning. What an incredible and encouraging picture that uh, Habakkuk beholds in the midst of the questions that he is asking. We then come to Zephaniah, and we're going to see that this one has a theme of the nearness of judgment, but also the urgency of repentance. Now, there's a very interesting thing about Zephaniah. In chapter 1 and verse 1, we actually learn who he's related to. Uh, he actually has royal blood, which is very odd and very abnormal for a prophet. It says in verse 1, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Anybody remember who Hezekiah and Josiah were? Let, let me put it this way. Were they good kings or bad kings? Hezekiah and Josiah. Not everybody at once. They, they were, go ahead. Well, um, I guess you could say that, yes, um, because every believer has an imperfect life. 
But Hezekiah was very well known for the fact that um, he did choose to follow the Lord. He was ill, and the prophet Isaiah comes in and prays for him, and he's given additional time of life. And then he foolishly decides to show off his wealth to the foreign governments, and we see that failure. But yet we see the Lord's mercy to spare Israel during his lifetime. Now, overall, he was a good king. He had his mistakes, but he overall was a good king of Judah. And Josiah was known as a very good king. Now, he, he seems to have an untimely death because he gets overconfident in his own ability. Rather than trusting in the Lord, he goes to war when he's told not to. Um, but he still was a very godly king that destroyed a lot of the high places. He did away with a lot of the pagan worship. Again, it's a picture of an imperfect believer and yet one that God worked through. What's significant here about these people is Zephaniah is related to King Hezekiah. So therefore, he is... Um, he is of royal blood in some way, and he prophesies, we see, pardon me, in the days of the king Josiah. So he has a very brief window of prophecy only for this king's reign is what we learn. And so his lifetime, based on that information, um, is going to most likely overlap with the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. Because if you remember Jeremiah, Jeremiah begins his call in the days of the good king Josiah. And then after his death, everything goes downhill for the nation after that. So Zephaniah prophesies during this time. He is of royal blood. And then we see um, something in verses 4 through 6, particularly about his prophecy, which I think is very important to kind of understand the fall and decline of nations. He's going to talk about here when we read them in verses 4 through 6 about two different idols that the children of Israel decided to follow that the nations around them were also serving. What's significant about these two is exactly what happens in nations today and throughout history when they turn their back on God, the, the type of worship each one of these had. So let's look at these few verses. Verse 4 of chapter 1. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal or Baal, that's the first false god, from this place, and the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the name of the Lord, but also swear by Milcom, which is also known as the pagan god of Molech. It's known by both names. Verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Now these two gods, and I have these in your, your notes, Baal was a god that Israel dealt with many times throughout her history. And Baal was the god of sex, of, of immorality. And it was part of worshiping him was to engage in uh, horrific sexual practices. And then there was the pagan god Molech, which was uh, basically a furnace with arms um, that would grow red hot. And they would sacrifice their children to this pagan god of Molech. And so what happened in the decline of the nation, even here in Jerusalem, which remained, um, you could say, more godly for longer, even amongst them, they began to become sexually deviant, and they began to disregard children's lives. They would sacrifice children's lives. Now, we may not see people um, having these actual idols in our nation today, but we see the same thing, do we not? We see the same disregard for sexuality. We see that everywhere in the news today. And the same disregard for children's lives. 
And let's go further. It's not just in the nation of non-Christians we see this. We see this in the church. We see increasing toleration of sexual deviance in the church today, which is exactly what happened in Israel when they got ready to fall. It's exactly what happened in Rome before they fall. There's always a cycle to nations. Secondly, we have continued to see, even amongst God's people, a disregard for the life of children. If you look at Muslim nations... Muslim nations have a 5 to 7% birth rate. Um, now, you need a birth rate of about 2.7. So, in other words, every couple needs to have 2.7 kids. And we can't have 0.7. But the point is you need that many kids born in order to just maintain your current birth rate, to replace who's dying uh, and replace the parents. And in the church today, our birth rate in the United States is about 1.7. While Muslim nations take very seriously what God's word says about children, they value children, and they have a 5 to 7% birth rate. It's why they're increasing while our nations are decreasing. One of the signs of Israel's judgment back in Deuteronomy was that when you're under judgment, you will decrease in number, you will not increase. Now that's happening in the church today. Just this week I had a, a conversation with another pastor that essentially was trying to explain a way that... Um, there is a sliding scale of sin for Christians to decide birth control and these different types of things. And he tried to base that on Jesus' statement to count the cost in, uh, in the Gospels, which that's not referring to counting the cost economically of whether or not to have another child. That's not what he's speaking about. But nonetheless, this is a, a pastor in our denomination that was trying to use that as justification to um, justify Christians today to not practice abortion, but to practice tons of other means to prevent having children because they didn't feel they were ready. I mean, in our conversation, he brought up multiple times, uh, well, what if a, a couple's just too young? Well, if they're married and if God creates a life, then biblically speaking, the Lord is the one that determines when that life comes into being, not, not a couple, not a Christian. And so we as Christians have been very adamant in the United States fighting against abortion, surgically, medically, and chemically. But we as the people of God have committed the exact same sin in that we still make the excuse and the choice to not have children based on economics or comfort or stage of life. Is that not the exact same thing that the world is choosing when they actually murder the life of a child. If we really get to the core of it, it's the exact same thing. And amongst God's people, this was increasing when they walked away from God. Why? Because they came to view sexuality as a personal pleasure rather than a responsibility and a privilege to share in the procreation of God as he created initially with Adam and Eve. And so this is always a core issue. When a nation's going to fall, Israel, Rome, throughout history, you can study this, they always fall in this area of how they view children and how they view sexuality. It's always the precursor to a nation's fall because it is a sign of having rejected God's creation and rejecting his command to be fruitful and multiply and how he designed the family to be. If we go on to uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, I won't belabor that point anymore, but chapter 2 and verse 3, we then see an encouraging verse in the midst of judgment. It says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice, 
Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So we, we see some encouragement in the midst of this. Again, the prophecy of Zephaniah is talking about the nearness and how close judgment is and how much we deserve it, but at the same time, encouraging an urgency of repentance. And then in chapter 2, I won't go through all that, but essentially it talks about um, the desolation of other nations, not just Israel, but the other nations, uh, Gentile nations, will give an account to God as well for their sins. And then when we get to chapter 3, and if you'll find verse 18 through 13 with me, we then see what appears to be another prophecy about the millennial reign of Christ. And so the millennial reign of Christ, to refresh our memories, is after Jesus returns. He came the first time as a servant. The second time he's coming as king. But before he comes back and puts his foot on the ground and returns in conquering military power, the Bible talks about him coming and meeting us who are believers in the clouds, what we would call the rapture. So his foot does not set um, he does not step foot on the earth at that time. Rather, he takes the people of God away, and, and I believe that happens near the beginning or before the beginning of the seven years at some point at that time. It could happen at any time. And then after the seven years, there is going to be then Jesus returning in power, the Battle of Armageddon. And then that is when the ending of Revelation tells us that there is a thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, some will say that that's completely symbolic, um, that it's just all pointing to symbolically that Christ is reigning on high. Uh, my simple question to that is, what do we do then with all of these prophecies if we would take that view? It also doesn't make a lot of sense to spiritualize Jesus' second coming and all the prophecies about that if we literally saw all the fulfillment of his first coming. And many times these passages, like we saw back in Micah, are side by side. They're the same section of verses. So the simplest way to interpret it seems to be to just take God at his word. If he said it and the other prophecies were literal, we expect it to be literal. If we're wrong, then we'll stand before the Lord one day and say, Lord, we, we just took you at face value. And we're trying to do the best to interpret faithfully. So here in uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, let's look here toward the end of this book at verses 8 through 13. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day that I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Points to him coming back as conquering king, does it not? Vivid language. But then notice what it says on the heels of that. Again, seeming to point to the millennial reign. Verse 9. But then I will restore to the peoples a pure language. I think it's reminding us of like the reversal of Babel and the reunifying of the world around the Lord. So he'll restore a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Can you picture all nations of the earth serving Jesus? That's how the millennium, Scripture tells us, will begin. Only those who survive... The tribulation, Gentile believers from other nations and all of Israel that remains that was not killed in the tribulation. Everyone that goes into the millennium will be a Christian, but then they will have children and their children will choose some of them to reject Christ, even with him literally sitting on the throne. But what a beautiful picture, the Lord restoring all the peoples, a pure language, a pure speech that they can all call on his name 
and that all of them can serve him with one accord. What a beautiful picture. It goes on to say, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me, for I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Imagine Israel. The picture we see painted of her in Israel is far too often in Scripture arrogant and haughty. That will be removed in the millennial kingdom. They will be a humble people as the Lord intended, and he will set his love upon them. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they will trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. What an incredible promise about the future of Israel. No wonder the apostles were longing to know the answer to that when Jesus was getting ready to ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1. Uh, let's see where I left off here. Christ and Zephaniah can be summarized this way. The future is peace for God's people. But it is destruction for the ungodly. And so once again, we see the certainty of coming judgment, how near it is, could happen at any moment, the Lord returns, and the urgency to repent. But what a beautiful picture of the peace that Jesus will bring when he comes back. Then we come to Haggai and Zechariah, which if somebody would turn to Ezra chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to read a couple verses for me in a minute. Uh, Ezra chapter 5, if you'd open up there. And find just the first two verses. What's interesting about both Haggai and Zechariah is they are post-exilic prophets. The other prophets we've looked at so far uh, were prophesying up until the time of uh, Jerusalem's destruction and Samaria's destruction before the captivity. Or even prophesying during the captivity. But these two prophets are going to arrive on the scene shortly around the time or before the time of Nehemiah and... Uh, they are going to be used to encourage the people to do something. Pardon me. And so if you have that in Ezra chapter 5, would somebody read verses 1 and 2 for us? So a lot of hard names there, but did you, did you catch the last part? Haggai and Zechariah are two prophets that were sent to help the people rebuild, uh, help the people rebuild the temple. And so they were encouraging them in this time because they had started the work and then they stopped. And so we're going to pick up here, first of all, with Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of one another. Uh, we see that clarified there in Ezra chapter 5. But here in Haggai, let's look at the first five verses, and we see about how it's time to rebuild the temple. 
In the second year, King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel. And so we learn who he was, the son of Shetiel, the governor. So Zerubbabel was the, the governor of the Israelites that had returned to uh, the Jerusalem area, governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so Joshua was the high priest that had returned after the exile saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. They say it's not time to rebuild the temple. It's what they're saying. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. And so they're called to consider the fact that they're moving back and they're fixing up their houses, but they don't want to fix up the temple. And they had experienced some opposition, but the prophets are going to encourage them uh, to do that. And then in chapter 2 and verse uh, 4 here of Haggai, we see the prophet encouraging Zerubbabel. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, he's the governor, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you and the people of the land, says the Lord, and the work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So these two prophets arise on the scene to encourage the people to get back to the work. And Haggai uh, tells them to consider what you're working for. Are you going to rebuild God's house or are you going to work on your own house? But he also points to prophetically that shaking is coming to the world. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace says the Lord of hosts. Now the puzzling thing is the temple that they rebuild at this time, the second temple, there was the first temple of Solomon that was destroyed, then there's the second temple they're going to rebuild, it's going to be remodeled at the time of Herod, uh, and then it's going to be destroyed in 70 AD. This second temple never experiences a time of peace. They're going to go through constant difficulty. And so what is this later temple he's talking about? It seems to be a reference to Ezekiel's temple. The later temple that the glory of the Lord will fill. The, the scripture never says that the glory of God came down and filled this second temple that they rebuilt. But it does talk about the temple being filled with the presence of God when Jesus returns and when there is that millennial temple. And so we see that the Lord encourages them. The silver is his, the gold is his that he will provide. And even though they're not going to see the full fulfillment of the vision, they're being called to nonetheless rebuild the temple and continue to practice those different sacrifices. Again, they were a dress rehearsal of Jesus that was coming. They were called to observe those things down to a T to point to what the Messiah would come and do and not to just wait just because the fullness of that prophecy had not yet come. And for sake of time, I won't go into Hebrews chapter 12, but Hebrews 12, 25 through 29, it's in your notes, refers to the same type of shaking that's going to come and how the Lord Jesus is going to be greater in the future and his presence will be greater. So Christ in Haggai is prophesied in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 
that one day Jesus will be desired by all nations. Again, can you imagine that day where he will be the desire of all nations and his presence in the latter temple shall be greater than the former temple. We then come to Zechariah and we find the theme of the Messiah and the millennium. Now, it's the longest of the, um, the minor prophets, and it has a lot to do with prophetically the end of times. Again, Ezra chapter 5, he is a contemporary of Haggai. They're uh, preaching, ministering at the same point in history, and they're both helping the Jewish people to get the temple rebuilt now that they have returned. That happens long before they rebuild the wall. Um, the confusing part for the Jews in Jesus' day, and likely for many of us, is which prophecies in Zechariah are referring to the Messiah's first coming and which ones are referring to his second coming. Well, we, we know a lot more in the sense that um, Jesus' first coming has been fulfilled. He came, he died on the cross, he came as a servant. We're going to see some prophecies that speak of that, and we're also going to see some prophecies that refer to him coming as king. So let's try to go through these. Uh, we're going to go rather quickly. Um, I'm not really going to dive into the visions. There's a whole bunch of visions in Zechariah, from what I understand. They parallel Revelation in many ways. Um, I'm not going to dive into that too much tonight. That would take a while. But I'm going to deal with more of the clear statements of prophecy that point to Christ. So Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 3, what an encouraging way that the book begins. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts being a title referring to the Lord's military might and power. And remember, they are in defeat. They are going back. They have a lot of opposition, even up to the time of Nehemiah. A lot of the people of the land are trying to resist them and thwart them and overthrow them and kill them. And they are being encouraged to return to the Lord. And if they do, he'll return to them. Kind of reminds you of James, does it not? Um, to draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. So the book begins with an encouragement. And then if you jump down to verse 17, talks about the future coming that God has prepared. He's not done with Israel, even though they're living in very difficult days. Verse 17, again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So very clear, I think, what he's saying. He's going to restore Jerusalem. He's going to restore his people. Very, very clear there. Thing is, it, it didn't happen until what we look to in the future. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, tell us again about the coming days. Prophecy about when one day Jesus returns. Uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people. So notice there's going to be many Gentiles that become believers. They'll become my people, many nations. And I will dwell in your midst. This has never happened yet. In Israel, That's why we look forward to the future. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts sent me to you. And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So we see the awe and the, the quietness that such a prophecy really should inspire in us. 
that the Lord is going to restore his people. He's going to bring in many non-Jewish people into that kingdom as well. And he's going to once again choose Jerusalem, not because of anything they did, not because they obeyed or they finally did the right thing, but because of his faithfulness to them, because he loves them and has chosen them as his own people. Then in chapter 3, I won't really dive into it, but I will make note because it's very famous. There is a vision here of a high priest and the high priest needing to get some clean garments. And that's a very well-known part of this, uh, this part of Scripture. You may have heard sermons or something on it in the past. We'll jump forward, though, to chapter 4 and verse 6. Very famous verse here. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. That was the governor. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Very famous passage there about the Lord's power to work even when circumstances and everything seems against us. Again, what was going on at this time is all of the nations around them and, and the walls were in ruins. They had no protection. All the nations around them were trying to get them back into a corner and get them on the bad side of the king. They were trying to give them death threats. They were trying to bribe them from doing what God had called them to do. They were doing everything they could to stop the people of God from returning to the land. And they were being reminded, the governor specifically was being reminded, it wasn't by might nor by power. It was by his spirit that God would do this. Again, pointing to God's the one that accomplishes his plans. It's not based on how many people there are or how many resources there are. It's based on the faithfulness of God. We then jump forward to chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 9 through 15. And we're going to see here the picture of both a priest and a king. Uh, very interesting. Jesus bears both of those titles, does he not? He will be the priest of a better covenant, and he's also the king. And we see this here in chapter 6 through a vivid um, illustration that they're supposed to act out and it has symbolic meaning. Verse 9, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldiah, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and the gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So they're going to take this gift of precious metals, they're going to make a beautiful crown out of it, and they're going to set it on the high priest's head. The high priest wasn't supposed to rule and reign, though, so what is this about? It has a symbolic meaning. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is Branch. That's a reference to Christ. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? It's a prophecy of that. And if we turn forward to, I believe I have it in your notes. Maybe I do not. Yes, I do. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, if you turn there. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 20 and go to 7 verse uh, 3. This talks about Jesus being both priest and king of the new covenant. And so we, we see the picture of how Jesus is going to fulfill 
uh, what is being prophesied back in Zechariah. And again, there's, there's a future aspect to this as well. Verse 20. Wherefore, the forerunner has entered before us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then the next three verses are going to define who Melchizedek is. It's a guy that occurs early on in the book of Genesis. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem before the Jews conquer it, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. His name means king of righteousness. And then also Salem, the name of the city he ruled over that would become Jerusalem, we believe. That means king of peace. So king of righteousness, king of peace. This guy, Melchizedek, back early in Genesis, he has these titles. And here the writer of Hebrews is explaining for us what that means prophetically about Christ. It goes on to say in verse 3, again, likelihood here of connection to Jesus, without father, without mother, without genealogy, with neither beginning of days nor end of life. We know nothing about Melchizedek's lineage. We don't know who he was born from, who his mother was. In one sense, we don't know that of Jesus either because he doesn't have a human father. And Mary uh, was the vessel he was born from, but uh, his life was knit together by the power of the Spirit in her womb, which is unlike any of us. Neither having beginning nor end of life, Jesus never will die with any finality. He's been resurrected. He has lived for all eternity. He will continue to live for all eternity. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So we see this prophecy here of how Jesus will be both king and priest in the prophecy back in Zechariah. And in Hebrews, we learn that he is both the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Again, these things are pointing uh, to Christ. We then come in Zechariah to chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. When the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those seventy years, did you really fast for me? And he repeats it, for me. When the Israelites were in exile, they apparently began to practice some fasts. And from what I understand, these were fasts mourning the fall of Jerusalem and mourning the fall of their leaders. So over the course of their 70 years, they've been mourning the fact that they were destroyed as a nation. And the Lord asks them prophetically a very tough question through Zechariah. Are you really fasting for me? Is that the reason why you continue to mourn about the destruction of Jerusalem and your forefathers? Is it really a fast to me? And the passage goes on in chapter 7 to talk really about how the Lord cares more about obedience than just ritualistic sacrifice. They had made up these other fasts. They afflicted themselves. They mourned uh, continually for the things they had lost. But it appears they were really missing the point of fasting and missing the point of brokenness. It became something they did to mourn what they had lost politically and economically rather than really fasting for me, for the Lord, uh, as he says. We then come to chapter 8 of Zechariah. We're going to jump around a little bit. We see the Lord's love and the future 
uh, talked about in this chapter. Verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And then verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Once again, a prophecy. Israel has, has never returned back as God's people. Uh, from the time they came back to rebuild the temple, in terms of, of the nation really returning back, they never have. The majority has continued to stay far, far away until the time the Messiah will return. Verse 13 goes on to say, And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, do not uh, anti-Semitism and hate for the Jews continue to this day throughout our world. But there's a prophecy. O house of Judah, house of Israel, I will save you, both north and south. I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. Verse 22 of chapter 8. Yes, many peoples, strong peoples, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. There will come a day when other nations make pilgrimage to worship the Lord and pray in that city. We also then find in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, we, we find both Jesus' first coming and his second coming mentioned in two verses back to back. And the first one is very well known. It's a prophecy that I'm sure you will remember, especially this time of year. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the donkey. And then it jumps right from his first coming, speaking of his peaceful and humble entry into Jerusalem. It jumps into talking about his second coming. No wonder that so many Jewish people had this confused. I think we would too, because it's the very next verse. Speaking of his second coming. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He, that's referring to Jesus, shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The extent of his kingdom, the entire world. And that is what he is returning to do. Those two prophecies on the heels of one another. Then in chapter 12, chapter 12, and we'll look at verses 10. Um, through the first part of 12, in your notes I have to 14, but the next couple of verses really just repeat the same, same thing. So we'll look at 10 through the first part of 12, uh, talking about the day when Israel will look on Jesus as their Messiah. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. 
In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself of the house of David. And it goes on to talk about various houses. The, the entire nation, every family of Israel will mourn. This has never happened yet. It's a prophecy of when Jesus returns. And they look on him whom they have pierced. He, he has, we know, in his resurrected body still those holes in his hands and that wound in his side. They will look upon him. They will mourn and they will receive him as the Messiah that he truly is on that day when he returns. Then we'll end the book with chapter 13, verse 8, and we'll read all the way to the end of chapter 14. Again, speaking of the remnant of Israel and the return of Christ. And, and this is going to be a hard passage in a sense because we're going to see how there is only going to be at the very end, the believing Jews that remain. Every Jew that would practice unbelief and would choose to reject him will be wiped out at the end of time, uh, the, as we know it, before the millennium begins of those thousand years. Verse 8, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, I believe that's a reference to the tribulation. He's going to bring them through. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one, not a single Israelite in that day, will not be a Messianic Jew. Each one will say, the Lord is my God. Rolling right into chapter 14. There were no chapters in the original text. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle at Jerusalem. That great battle of Armageddon. The city will, shall be taken. The houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. As he fights in the day of battle, in that day, notice what Jesus will do. Again, he raptures his people in the clouds, but notice what happens the moment that his feet set foot on the earth and the location of them. This is the mountain that overlooks Jerusalem that's going to be mentioned. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. There's going to be geographical change and there is going to be deliverance through a passage rather than the Red Sea when this happens. It's never happened yet. Verse 5, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Azeel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come. And notice the wording here. All the saints with you. A reference to how Jesus returns, is it not? He raptures his church in the clouds. But then at the end of the tribulation, he comes back with his saints as part of his warrior party. Verse 6. It shall come to pass in that day that there shall be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. 
And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Again, this, this references back to what we saw in Ezekiel several weeks ago with the millennial kingdom and the temple and the different geography that will be in Jerusalem at that time. Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be that the Lord is one and his name is one. All the land shall be turned into the plain, into a plain, pardon me. In other words, all of the earth will be leveled and plummeted and reduced to being one level. There will not be any mountains anymore during the tribulation, and by this point it will all be destroyed. Jerusalem will literally be the highest point in the world. It goes on to say this. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate from the tower of Neil to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall be there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. They will be vaporized when he returns. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and <clears throat> pardon me, raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of of all nations surrounding Jerusalem shall be gathered together, gold, silver, apparel, in great abundance. There's going to be great plunder from that battle. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and on the donkey and on the cattle shall be in those camps. So shall this plague be. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem, these are those that enter the millennial kingdom, who are believers, <clears throat> shall again come up to Jerusalem year from year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If you as a nation, a Gentile nation, don't come and celebrate with the Lord, then you won't have rain that coming year. Verse 18. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. It's going to be a time where every ounce of Israel is holy to him and set apart to him. And there is no wicked Canaanite defiling or bringing in a pagan idol at any time. We see a picture of the beautiful time when Jesus will come and will reign. I know we've looked at a lot tonight, but it's, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of when Jesus is going to come back. There are so many details of what this time of history is going to hold and prophecies that he has yet to fulfill. Uh, let's close in prayer this evening. 
Father, we thank you for what we've seen in these six books, six prophetical books that point to who Jesus is, that show him as the coming king, as both the savior and the judge, that tell us of the certainty of judgment and yet the urgency to repent, that remind us, Lord, that you will keep your promises. Father, there's also a terrifying reality for those who don't know of what's coming. The destruction and the suffering for those who will choose to reject you. You will exercise your vengeance. You will destroy. And you will rule the nations with a rod of iron and justice and also peace that this world has never known. Father, we look forward to that day seeing Jesus sitting on the throne. We thank you for these prophecies and this encouragement, which not only is an encouragement for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, but Father, it's also an encouragement for us, who because of your mercy, while Israel is rejecting you, we during this season of the church age are, as Gentiles, able to follow you. You call us to be amongst those other nations who will be your people. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your plan that you will, even with all your patience and long-suffering, accomplish every single detail of it. And we pray, Father, that you would give us an urgency and that you would uh, help us to share that message with others. Because it is urgent, but it's also an incredible promise that we who believe have of what will happen when Jesus returns. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.